Welcome to Blackbird, episode number 76. My name is James, and today I am thrilled to bring to you a conversation I had with Sam Jacobs. Sam has really been making the podcast rounds recently. I want to go on the record to say that this was actually recorded on November 17th, so almost a month ago. And <laughs> just and it's very important to me that you know that I talked to Sam before anybody else other than Pete Quinones, where everyone else heard him. This guy is a pretty amazing personality. I've actually met him in person and didn't even know it. He's a very private person. So when I met him, it didn't click that I was actually meeting this guy who I'd heard and read and uh, was super fascinated with. But that's all right. He's a very interesting theorist and historian and just kind of knowledgeable about everything. You can find his work at ammo.com. And of course, like I mentioned, I recorded this interview about a month ago. So if you're interested in hearing these conversations right as they happen, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com. Send me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I will send you these conversations as soon as I hit stop on the recorder. You really can't beat that. And in addition to getting early access to my interviews, you will also be supporting this show, which I appreciate more than you can imagine. So with that grift out of the way, here is my conversation with Sam Jacobs. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah. So I heard you on... It seems like this is like my intro for half my guests, but I heard you on Freeman Beyond the Wall, Pete Quinones' show. I, I guess you'd been on it a couple of times, right? Like this wasn't your first appearance about a month ago? My first one was, it was ancient. I mean, it was like, it was literally the first podcast I ever went on oh, was wow. his show. And I talked about um, the history of the militia, like not, you know, the militia movement, but like the militia the you know constitutionally recognized body of armed men mm -hmm. throughout american history yeah long time ago so this is that that shows my ignorance do, do militias exist outside of the u.s i mean i hear switzerland's like one giant militia is that right switzerland i have heard things about but don't i can't speak definitively so if i'm wrong and i'm just like repeating some cliff clavin-esque you know <laughs> not actual fact um, but as I understand it, Switzerland does not have a standing army. What they simply have is a militia. And every man between like 18 and 40 or whatever it is, is beholden to train with a rifle. But they don't generally keep them at home, as I understand it. Oh. They keep them like in the, you know, militia, in like the armory, you know. But that, you know, I don't, I don't. This is like stuff I've heard, you know, sixth hand. And so I'm not saying it with any degree of confidence. I've been, I've been to Switzerland and um, I think the biggest tell that it is actually kind of a libertarian paradise is that it's the most boring uh, place I've ever been <laughs> in my life. It's just a nice orderly place to live and do commerce and like, you know, you mean to um, tell me that a libertarian paradise isn't just everybody a acting a fool and doing whatever the hell they want? 
Yeah, there's no like dreadlock dudes smoking pot on street corners in Switzerland. Like it's it's very very boring and or it's very very like German and you know and I was in the Italian part, but it's very like everything is orderly. There's no there's no graffiti. Uh, it, it, not in the city I was in anyway. I wasn't in like Bern. I was in some small city on the Italian border, but like yeah, there's no graffiti. And there's just, you know, like, yeah, it's, 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 it's so like undescribably um, normal. <laughs> I love that. All right. So now you did, you, you have mentioned in the past that you're not ideologically libertarian, right? No, I'm not. No. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely pro freedom. I'm definitely uh-huh. pro like individual freedom, but I think that there are, problems with libertarianism that libertarianism fails to adequately answer. All right. What actually, okay. So before we get into like theory and stuff, why don't you introduce yourself first? Give a quick bio or just what, whatever it is that you'd like to say about yourself. Cause I'm, you know, I mean, I'm guessing people who listen to my show probably listen to Pete's as well, but uh, may not go back that far. Sure. Um, so my name is Sam Jacobs. I work for ammo.com. Um, my title there is like lead writer, chief historian. I write most of the articles over there, particularly the, the historical ones. I also host a podcast called The Resistance Library, which is sponsored by ammo.com. And I run a news aggregator called uh, news.libertasbella.com. And yeah, I mean, I, um, I've been writing you know, for years now, and I have a kind of a deep knowledge of history and um, philosophy, and I'm not formally educated, you know, at all. I don't have any kind of um, impressive degree or uh, never studied history or philosophy formally. I'm just, you know, some semi-regular guy who likes to read books. So that's my you know background and then like i definitely have a distrust of experts and kind of institutional uh knowledge and an affinity for people who are operating outside of the kinds of official channels of knowledge um to analyze history uh talk about philosophy and culture and things like that Tell me about ammo.com. So it's an e-commerce store primarily, but it has this vast library of like political theory and that sort of thing. How did you get involved with that? And and how long have they been? I mean, like, did they did they start out as a blog that started selling ammo or have they always kind of been doing both? Do you know? So the way that I got involved is I just answered an ad for they wanted somebody who knew oh, about shit. guns to um to help them with infographics. And I emailed them like a week after they hired me to do that and said, you guys, they mentioned that they wanted some historical articles on the site. Mm -hmm. And I said, why don't you guys have a piece on Robert F. Williams? And they said, what most people say, who the hell's Robert F. Williams? And I'm like, so this is the thing about, about like me and this kind of stuff is I'm just like, everybody knows who Robert F. Williams is, right? I've never even heard of Robert F. Williams. Yeah, Robert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I have no like sense that people just don't know this stuff. Um, 
which by the which by the way is like not like oh I'm I'm such a genius and no one's on my level. It's like this is a huge L for me actually that like I have no sense of like what a normal person's historical knowledge is. But um, Robert F. Williams was a uh, black man in North Carolina in 1950s who has inspired me since I was a, a teenager. Um, he. He became a communist. He fled to Cuba. He fled to China. He's a complicated guy with a complicated story. But the, for me, the salient point about Robert F. Williams is that in the 1950s, he came back from World War II. And like a lot of black men in this country, he said, I'm not taking any more shit. And he did not rely upon the state to insist upon his rights. He organized an NRA gun club and said, if you want to send the Klan out to my house, you better send bachelors because we're shooting back from now on. And he did. Yeah, he, he, he did. It wasn't talk. You know, he, he, he did it. Um, and yeah, he ended up fleeing to Cuba. He did like communist propaganda for the, for the Cubans, you know, like their version of Radio Free Europe for America. I think it's called Radio Free Dixie or something. Um, but, and I was, you know, I was a socialist in my, in, uh, in my, most of my youth and young adulthood. And I have no shame about it whatsoever. Um, I think that actually a lot of the values of distrusting large institutions and championing the little guy against the, um, you know, the bigger forces in the world. Um, you know, I was an Orwell socialist is maybe a good way to put it. So I, you know, at the time admired kind of that aspect about him. Um, but now it's just like, you know, people, people, um, it's like the Black Panthers used to put Kim Il-sung on their front of their newspapers. And it's like, why? Well, because when you're under attack from the state, you just, you ally yourself with whoever, anybody who's willing to, to come to your aid. Um, so I don't really even now being, you know, a fierce critic of communism and socialism, um, I wouldn't necessarily criticize Williams for that because I think, you know, people just got to do what they got to do. And, and that's what, you know, he did. And he's the one who's getting you know, shot at and arrested. So, um, but that was kind of where the historical stuff all started because, you know, they, I think thought that I was just going to, kind of get them this stuff about you know this these data points for their infographics when they i think that's what they were looking for in somebody anyway and then they kind of got this guy who's like you know interested in all of this historical stuff and um i tend to you know not to like toot my own horn too much but like i tend to keep my finger kind of on the pulse of of culture war stuff because i actually think that that stuff is really important particularly now so um they've they've got me as kind of their you know eyes and ears on the ground of like what their customer is going to be concerned about whether they be you know conservative or libertarian or i'm sure we have the odd liberal and left-wing uh customers but um you know i think that what we provide that no one else really does is really thoughtful work on history that's not kind of cookie cutter libertarian, cookie cutter conservative stuff, and also relevant stuff for today 
that has a shelf life that's longer than 10 minutes. You know, I mean, there's so much stuff now. There's so much churn on outrage. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a place to like work with that and to engage that in discourse. But I also feel like I don't want to do that. And a lot of other people do that very, very capably. And so what I feel like we do at ammo.com is like, you know, we have like, we'll have an article about the great reset and the great reset is topical, but it's not, you know, a thing that's going to happen in the news one week and then next right. week we care about it anymore. It's like for the next two to three years, this is going to be in on people's minds and in the discourse and uh, militarization of police is another thing that's like, this isn't some deep historical topic, but you know, is militarization of the police, is the landscape on that gonna gonna really change in the next five years? I don't I don't think so. Are the customers of ammo.com receptive to criticisms of the police? Yeah. So I'm like, you know, part of the like non-libertarian thing with me is I feel like I I I have a balanced view of police, and that balanced view is what Charles Bukowski said. Uh, I don't hate the cops, but I feel a lot better when they're not around. You know, I've never had my day improved by interacting with a police officer. Um, but I do think, I believe pretty strongly that for a variety of complex reasons, high density populations require tough policing that rural populations do not. Mm-hmm. And um, I also think that there's a distinction to be made between law enforcement officers and peace officers. That's an important one to make. Um, I'm always talking up sheriff's departments. Do I think every sheriff who says he won't enforce an unconstitutional gun order will walk away from his pension and not enforce it? Of course I don't. But do I think that many who have said that they will do that will? Yes, I do. Yeah. And I'm unaware of any police departments that have put their neck on the line in that way. And I think that that distinction is important. And I also think that, you know, I, I, I think that we do a good job of that because we're very critical of militarization of police, mm-hmm. um, as I think we should be. Uh, we're very critical of the surveillance and privacy overreach issues that are related to things like the war on drugs we have you know i mean people should read my article on 9-11 um i think says a lot about kind of our philosophy about or my philosophy anyway but like you know the philosophy that gets expressed in my writing on ammo.com about uh, policing because you know one of the great tragedies i think of 9-11 is that we lost you know, I don't know how old you are, but like, I am old enough that I grew up, I was 21 years old when 9-11 happened. So I've got 21 years of my life that happened before 9-11. And I can pretty definitively say that we lost a lot on 9-11. Uh, the lives of the people that we lost, of course, are one thing, but to me, it's significantly more important that we lost um, a sense of freedom that we had in this country before and a big you know part of that is is the the massive expansion of of police state institutions in this country 
you know, certainly not. Um, I, I think that like it's funny because I've I've used the TSA as on on a couple other podcasts recently as examples of like low level, low level infrequent tyranny that people are kind of willing to just grumble about and like yeah. accept as compared to like you're going to starve to death if you don't get an experimental vaccine. But yeah, I mean the 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 TSA is like they're the they're the they're the living embodiment of of that and of that kind of um and it's you know the Republicans got that in. That's the thing mm-hmm. is there's this kind of like old style of conservatism that was much more trusting of police measures that I think largely went away and then kind of came back when there was the defund the police thing because the only thing worse than cops is no cops. And I think that people kind of rightly, I think people intuitively understood that the attack on police was not so much about the police per se than it was about a certain type of, of, you know, law and order in this country um, and, you know, replacing it with chaos and some kind of, and in more advanced cases, I think people understood that it was to, um, you know, create this kind of politicized replacement for the police police department, you know, these like these uh, social workers with badges who are going to like make sure that you weren't telling your kids that biological sex is real or whatever. Um, Well, yeah, I I live in Minneapolis and I mean, that was on the ballot this year. And, you know, a year ago when my anti-police side was in the forefront of my brain, I was all for defunding the police because, you know, I'm a libertarian and I'm a good libertarian. So yeah, fuck them. But but yeah, I mean, on on election day, I was like, no, I, like you said, the only thing worse than the police is no police. But one thing that's worse than the police is a government social worker. So so uh, yeah, right. so so I ended up I did end up voting no on that, you know. And and I you know I mean I was ambivalent on it, but uh, but I think that replacing cops with social workers is is just like the progressive dream and there's nothing yeah. there's nothing i hate more than the progressive dream really i mean i like i don't like city cops that's why i don't live in a city yeah you know like I, there's a sheriff's office i i can't even imagine a situation where i would ever have to deal with them um and like park rangers is another thing i deal with regularly that are like cops but it's like i never you know i mean i think i don't know i don't know why people live in cities anyway because this is like, I mean, this is the the white pill, black pill thing I talk about a lot is the white pills kind of just don't apply if you live in, a, if you're going to live in a big city or if you're going to live in a deep blue state, you know, if you're going to live in California, like, I don't really know what to tell you, dude, the people of California have spoken pretty loud and clear. Like they're not, they're not um, friendly to liberty in any sense of the word. Um, so I don't know what you think you're going to, you know, how reasonably free you're going to be in California or um, Oregon or New York or Massachusetts or Delaware, as opposed to, you know, Texas or Florida or Arizona or, you know, I mean, even Colorado, Colorado is blue, but um, 
it's not, you know, it's also most of the state's Second Amendment sanctuary state or sanctuary county. So, you know, that's the that's the the kind of like thing that hangs over all of this is that it's it's not going to be um, equally dis- liberty will not be equally distributed throughout the throughout the nation. Uh, and if you're in a city and you're in a deep blue state, I don't, I can't say that I like your prospects, but you know, who knows? Because there's a chaos element to this too, is like when the cities get destroyed, which they inevitably will by these kinds of policies, you know, then what, then, then what, I, I, I don't know, but there's you know, certainly a situation could arise where like, you know, things that I'm saying aren't true, but I would say for the short term, like getting out of the cities is not a bad idea. Well, and I think the then what is you get a Rudy Giuliani who doesn't do anything good for the city except for empower the police. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's the thing is like, so this is, this is maybe a good entree into my like differences with libertarianism is like, you know, I, I don't think a Giuliani is a bad thing at all. Oh yeah, no, I, I don't think he's a bad thing. I just think that there's a better thing, like a better alternatives, which is largely not being in a city. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm looking, to, I'm looking to get out as soon as I can. I, I'm not going to go out to the middle of nowhere. I don't think, but definitely, like you know, outer ring suburbs are not off the table at this point. Yeah, and the outer ring suburbs even are not, you know. I mean, that's the thing is like that's that's a world away from from this from the city. But I mean, you know, I think that it may like the police thing may for me boil down to this idea that I have that there's kind of like there's so, there's social functions that get filled, and there's ways that we choose as a society to fill them, and the thing that we get from police is not a thing that we can do without and some replacement is needed that's not social workers with clipboards and frankly i think that the track record of places with that rely heavily on private you know security are not super uh great mm-hmm. so you know, that's kind of like the police thing is like, I'm very critical of the police, but at the end of the day, I just don't like, you know, the federal bureau, the federal cops are like, that's the thing that's crazy to me. All the discussion about the police, the police, the police, the police is like, why do you want to defund the least powerful, um, most responsive to local control version of law enforcement and not you know, the entrapment farm of the federal government. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's to me, like it's, it's, it's not, it's not actually a coincidence that they don't talk about this because I think that a lot of it for the left is actually about upward transfer of power away from Mm -hmm. local communities to the federal government, which they believe they can control, you know, federal police forces like Sharpton's one and one of these for decades. So you know, this is, it's not surprising to me that they don't, that they don't discuss this, but it is sort of like interesting to me that the, that the right, be it conservatives or libertarians, haven't kind of picked up on that uh, impulse 
to really hammer home. I mean, the FBI in particular, I think is a great place to hammer away in corruption right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I have a good thing to say about any federal uh, law enforcement that I can think of. I suppose the marshal service is necessary. <laughs> you know, you Are they trans- the ones that catch fugitives? What do they do? I don't they even get know what fugitives. Do. They transport guys to federal court. I think they act as bailiffs. So they're like, the county, they're like the federal county sheriffs. Yeah, they do sheriff stuff. You know, like, that's what I mean. Like, there's like, there's, there's like, you know, there's, there's peace officer functions that need to be fulfilled. But, um, you know, the federal, the federal government, I think, is in dire need of uh, reform and streamlining of its enforcement arms. Because, I mean, first of all, like, you know, why is the CDC enforcing the law in this country about uh, rentals, you know, not yeah. like containing an Ebola zone, but saying that, you know, rentals are, I mean, this is a whole problem of the administrative state, which is ultimately the, the this is the area where I'm going to have the most overlap with libertarians. Mm-hmm. Is that like, you know, the the very concept of the administrative state is entirely unconstitutional and almost every violation of your rights is sitting on the base of the administrative state. You know, it's the whole like Americans break three laws every day and they don't even know it. These laws that you're breaking are for the most part, not, you know, actual laws. They're not like legislation right. that was passed by Congress. They're bureaucratic fiats that were delegated away from Congress who decided at you know some point in the 60s and 70s that they couldn't be bothered to write the laws in this country anymore so they just create agencies and hand it off to them you know that i think is 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 really where the rubber meets the road on all of this stuff yeah ben sass a senator from nebraska was was uh very critical of that i think I think he might have even written a book on it. Uh, just basically the abdication of responsibility from Congress onto the onto the progressive bureaucracies. So would you say that progressivism is sort of the national religion that has replaced constitutionalism or whatever? Well, I maybe think not, maybe not even the maybe not even the religion, but uh, I, I consider progressivism religion. I think it has religious aspects to it. I mean, I also think that the answer I always give to this is that I don't think anything is like religion except religion. Mm. So I think that religious comparisons, man, they kind of fall flat. But I think it certainly has aspects of of uh, religious fanaticism about it. Um, it's certainly hostile to inquiry. You know, it's certainly hostile to inquiry and. It has this, I mean, the people who talk about, I think the thing that people who talk about the left as being like church ladies get wrong is that I basically think that there's been like the psyop where church ladies got a bad name. And it's like, everybody thinks about the, you know, the PMRC in the eighties and the rock bands and the lyrics and stuff. And they think that it was Jimmy Swagger that was responsible for warning labels on records it wasn't it was a bunch of democratic party senators wives yeah it's the same deal with the video game rating system yeah you know um so i think that like it's like a caricature of religion it's not really like they're 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 not like religious people that i know 
you know, they're like this kind of um, Stephen King novel version of religious people where like all religious people are insane and unhinged and irrational, you know, in that sense, like, yeah, they're like that. But I I think that it's kind of a slander against religious to compare them because they're so much more unreasonable and fanatical than, you know, the average religious person that you might encounter. I think that they have the, the, the danger of, I mean, I think they have this like weird strain of basically this weird strain of Puritan Christianity mm. embedded in them. And they kind of like, it's kind of the most malicious parts of it. And that that's there, you know, that the Puritan pietist, we have to create heaven on earth kind of impulse, I think is definitely there. And I don't want to, you know, hand wave it and say it's not. But I also think that when we talk about things being like religion, we people have a lot of ideas about religion that don't kind of really, you know, translate to anything else. But I think that they have the frightening aspect of religious fanaticism in that Burroughs talk, you know, William Burroughs talks about this. Like cynical, cynical careerists are actually far less dangerous than idealists because cynical careerists can be bargained with and bribed and manipulated in all these different they, they they can be appealed to they have they operate on the basis of interest you know so even like the worst government rent seeker who's like only about the pension you know he you you can you can break bread with that guy but if they're a believer what do you what do you have to say yeah you know well, there's no like there's no reasoning with it and I would say that th- this has always been a belief system, but uh, that in the last few years with the the movements surrounding transgender ideology, not transgenderism or transgender people, but the ideology. Right. Um, and, and BLM, not black people, obviously, but the, the movement, right. Black Lives Matter, and the sort of movement that surrounded COVID, those things have given them rituals and icons and a priesthood and like all of the things that are attendant to an actual religion and not just like a religion. Okay. Is that- the COVID thing? Yes. The COVID thing I think is a cult. like straight up. Like I, I, that I, that I pull no punches on that. I don't feel the need to equivocate on the COVID thing is a cult. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a weird religious call. I mean, and this is like, you know, I, I'm not saying that like the virus COVID isn't real. I had COVID. It was, I got sick if I was elderly yeah. or had some kind of health condition and hadn't gotten COVID. I would maybe look into the vaccine more than I have, which is not at all because I'm recovered and young and healthy. But the COVID thing is is a cult. I mean, there's no like, I don't think any ambiguity with the COVID thing. It's very... You know, I think that the Floyd thing is has religious aspects to it too. The like the critical race theory stuff, I think, specifically has like more kind of religious like aspects to it, and that it includes things like veneration of saints and like 
you know, the religious ritual stuff you're talking about, that's the stuff that really brings it, brings it into the realm of religion is that like, yeah, I mean, they have this kind of weird belief that like perpetual um, vaccination will save them yeah. in this, you know, I would say kind of demonic way. And similarly, I think that like the, the, the CRT stuff becomes religious becomes religious when they start using religious language things like the original sin of america is racism mm-hmm. you know this is the lang this is the la- this is the lang i mean that that like the evangelical aspect of it the need to proselytize uh, that's the that's the part of it that i think people latch onto and see as being necessarily religious but i think that the really religious aspects are in what you just talked about was the rituals the perfectibility of man, the notion of some kind of fall from grace that, but the thing that's really sick about it is there's no like atonement, you know, there's no, how do you, how do you come back from being canceled? There's not, yeah. you know, a, there's not a technology for redemption. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes, is, sometimes the apology sticks, but it seems like it's very arbitrary. It used to be like if you, you know, if you got in trouble with the PC people, then you'd show up on stage with Jesse Jackson or some other some right. other priest and that would be your redemption. That that no longer is a thing. Like Jesse Jackson is probably laughed at by BLM people. I, I don't know for sure, but he does not you don't see him anymore. Yeah, it's definitely acquired a pitch that it didn't use it didn't used to have. And that I think is I think people are rightly very troubled by that. I mean, I think that that is kind of like, as a source of blackpilling, I think that that is a more um, credible place to look for like throwing your hands to the sky and you know wailing to the heavens that all is lost is that there's like millions of people in this country who I think it's there's a better explanation for it, but you know, kind of lost their minds. And that's very, very real, much more real than whatever machination the uh, Biden regime, you know, thinks it's going to subject you to this week that won't actually happen because <laughs> because the, the you know half the country is in a open revolt against uh, the, the the Brandon administration. I mean, the let's go Brandon thing is like. It's so stupid, but people have really taken to it and it really irritates the left. I mean, they're just like apoplectic at this stupid chant. Yeah, it's hitting home even more than the the NPC meme did a few years ago. And that they hated yeah. that too. That, oh, you're depersoning us, all that stuff. I mean, like... <laughs> that was so weird though, because the weirdest part about that that I like that it's one of these things that I that I like will check to make sure that I didn't invent it in my head because it to remember it is so outlandish. Yeah. But do you remember around that time all the people who were like, if you hear voices in your head, you're crazy, and they were talking about your internal monologue? I do remember reading articles about people who don't have an internal monologue. Yeah, there was a whole like thread. I mean, it was it was like one of the most minor kind of Twitter flare-ups. It lasted, huh. you know, like 18 hours or something. It wasn't it didn't even get 
didn't even get to be the the big thing on Twitter, mm-hmm. but there was a small kind of minor, you know, half a day thing of the idea that you knew Trumpers were crazy because they couldn't believe that anyone couldn't hear voices in their heads. That is such a weird twisting of like thinking. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> like the thing you're describing is thought. Um, it's very, very frightening when you, when you kind of like take stuff. I mean, and this is like, again, to kind of my, you know, my variances with, with libertarianism or my critiques of it or whatever, however you want to put it is that like, I just think that there's a significant portion of the, I mean, I think you can kind of like break the world down roughly into three, maybe more or less equal parts. And that's people who will actively seek freedom despite difficulty and personal cost. And there's a spectrum there. There's people who, you know, sacrifice everything for just a little bit. And there's people who will give up a little bit for just a little bit. And all that's great and fine. I think there's a third of people who just kind of go with the flow, don't make waves, follow the leader. Um, and I think that there's a third of people who are just kind of irredeemably broken, who just hate any kind of human excellence, any kind of human freedom, anything nobler in man, and want to violently lash out against the first group that I described. And I think that the second group is easy enough to deal with, you know. They just want to live their lives. And, but the third group is the one that I just don't know. You know, um, I don't know how you don't deal with them. I don't know how you just, the whole like, I just want to be left alone thing. Um, I, I feel that. But there's a whole lot of people in the world who have decided that they're not going to leave me alone ever. There's and, just like, what do I do? <laughs> you know? There's a psychologist. His name's Matthias Desmet. He wrote an article, or I don't know if it's like an article or a paper. In, in any case, he wrote it recently talking about how we're experiencing a mass hypnosis. Um, the COVID thing kind of brought it out, but it is those three groups of people that are experiencing it. You've got the people who never, never were subject to this hypnosis. Like they just didn't get brainwashed. And then you've got, another group of people who were completely brainwashed and still are. And they're the ones who give you dirty looks for not wearing your mask. Um, if they don't, you know, assault you for it. Yeah. Right. He doesn't break it down into thirds. He says those are about 30% of the population each. It just happens that that one, that one 30% is like super vocal and loud. That 40% in the middle are the ones who just go along to get along. And they are slowly becoming unbrainwashed. Like they weren't brainwashed anyway. They weren't hypnotized. But right. they did go along with the with the the narrative because that's just kind of what they do. When the narrative says, you know, wear your mask and stay home, they're gonna wear their mask and stay right. home. Right, right, right. So I guess that's where the that's where the white pill is and where the where the kind of solution is is you just wait. Like you wait until things get out of hand and then that 40% in the middle slowly but surely comes around to your side until the next crisis when they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna be on the side of the brainwashed again. So well, I think again, the thing about those people is that kind of when they, you know, whatever metaphor you choose to use for wake up, or I think that's like a really stupid and kind of like college dorm room way of putting it. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a sociological term for these people when they become uh, socially engaged. 
It's middle American radical. They're the Perot voter. Not all, not you know. There's a lot of people who just kind of do whatever, go with the flow. But there's also in that forty percent that you talk about, and I think we're really, really seeing that right now in Loudoun County mm-hmm. and other places where there are these. And that's the county in Virginia that. Yeah, right. It's I mean, it's kind of become the poster child for the school board revolts, mm-hmm. and yeah. I think that there's tons of people who like they just they, they they don't and never will become radicalized. But then there's like. These people who their default setting is go with the flow because it's just easier to not make waves. And and, and most people are just trying to get by. And I think that that's fine. Yeah. You know, I actually like a lot of my politics revolves around that guy. Like, can we just let people who don't want to know anything about politics live their lives and and trust that, uh, you know, that their government is going to be small enough that it can't do a heck of a lot and that the parts of it that, are operating are actually doing things that improve their lives, um, which you know I don't take it for granted that that the government is incapable of improving people's lives. I just have a very different idea about how it does it. I think it sure. does it through like very very macro kind of um, very very macro kind of ways. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, about to make some some. Uh, you know, hairs stand on end, but I'm a big admirer of uh, Richard Nixon and particularly what he tried to do to replace welfare in America uh, was to basically reward the working poor uh, and to prioritize social spending on intact families uh, in the working poor, you know, I which my main complaint about the welfare state is not a philosophical problem with any kind of welfare. I'm much more practical than that. And, and uh, I think that, you know, basically like the proof is in the pudding. Does, does, does a program improve American society or does it make it worse? Yeah. You know, federal housing administration loans are really good are kind of my go-to war horse for, this is a government program that demonstrably improves American society. It puts people in homes. It gives people skin in, skin in the game. It makes it easier for people to form families, which is another socially stabilizing you know, factor in society. So that's kind of like the thing. is, And I think that, the, that having a social order in place is the thing that leads to the greatest amount of freedom. It's one of the reasons why I try to draw attention to these kinds of social issues because, you know, I think that that's kind of where a lot of this stuff begins to um, begins to germinate. You know, you need a social basis for liberty. Um, I think it was Tho Bishop when I had him on my podcast, he talked about how liberty is a social right or something to that effect. It's a social aspect you know, and and um, and this is again to t- kind of tie it back to this mass hypnosis thing that you talked about. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that certainly is is at play here. But there's all the thing is, there's always people who, you know, will be hypnotized by something. What do you do about that? And then, how do you kind of grab these people who are in this vast middle who just want to be left alone, be able to go to work, play with their kids? start a business, you know, whatever it is they want to do when they butt up against the power of the state and the state's allies, 
how do they respond? And that is, I think, you know, the COVID moment and the mass psychosis that you're talking about provide a once in probably a century opportunity for people on our side to present our ideas in a way that is very, very practical and non-ideologically driven. Because I think that one of the things that Ms., you know, the, the, the waking up or whatever metaphor you want to use, I think one of the reasons that's happening is because of the mass psychosis aspect that you're talking about. I mean, like these COVID people are, are crazy. You know, the double masking, the masking kids, the plexiglass, the endless vaccine boosters, the way they melt down when there's any kind of challenge presented to them. I think that the average American has a fair bit of common sense and that the insanity of this regime is being increasingly impossible to ignore. So as someone who has benefited from an HSA loan in the past and probably will again in the future because uh, I lost the house in a breakup, I can definitely relate to what you said about HSA loans being pro-social, I guess. Yeah. But on the other hand, economically speaking, in the long term, they feel like student loans where they inevitably lead to uh, bubble, like market bubbles in the housing market, if nowhere else. Do well, you think I think that, that the bubbles in the housing market are generally created by the when the equity crowd gets in and they decide that we have to start giving these loans to people who we know can't pay them back. Mm. And I'm certainly like not in favor of, you know, like that kind of financial irresponsibility. But I think that, and this ties into the COVID thing too. Because this is one of the things I've said about COVID is that, you know what drove COVID and the, and the COVID lockdowns? It wasn't, it, well, fear was certainly a factor, but it was egalitarianism. Yeah. Because if, it, if there had been any mature and adult response to that, it would have been certain groups of people should stay home and certain groups of people should just carry on about their lives and you should lose some weight. Yeah, because we knew that that was we knew very early on that that was that mm-hmm. that was comorbid with 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 the deaths. But because we can't talk to anybody like an adult anymore, we can't we, we can't ignore. I mean, this is the great like this is kind of the great victory of the left over the last fifty years is that we're completely unallowed to acknowledge any human difference whatsoever. Of any, I mean, the 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 most mad example of it, and it's and it's uh, you know, and it's the peak of its insanity is in these transgendered MMA fighters. That's really where I, I don't. Know that was a thing. Yeah, yeah. She <laughs> broke some woman's skull. Oh my or God. he broke some woman's skull. I'm sorry. I I refuse to use per, the the you know pronouns because I just I feel like. You can change your name, but you can't change your sex. And, um, but yeah, I mean, this is a, um, you know, this is where it kind of reaches the pinnacle of its madness is that we're not even allowed to say that men shouldn't be allowed to punch women in the head because they, you know, tie their hair in box braids and 
take estrogen for a few months. So there's this, and it applies to the housing market. It certainly goes into the student loan thing because the whole the whole progressive project is driven by this extremely resentful attitude towards any kind of human being capable of embracing struggle and the demand that they be provided with anything they want that they'd be allowed to be any not just that they allow not just they'd be provided with anything they want but that they allowed to that they be allowed to be anything they want anytime that they think that they want to be it, whether or not there's any connection to reality or not. And the student loan thing, you know, I want to be a French poetry scholar. Um, And then the COVID thing is like, you know, well, we can't acknowledge that like there are health problems associated with, with being overweight or that the elderly are at greater risk. The only time that it's allowed to be invoked, any kind of human difference is when it's in some kind of leftist battering ram to show to showcase the failings of western society. You know, that's the only time that the human difference is ever even acknowledged. It's the only time you're ever allowed to acknowledge differences between human beings and this is what, you know, this is like, this is the end game. And this is why the stakes are as high as they are, because there's no, you know, you liked my comment about Harrison Bergeron, um, which for people who don't know is a Kurt Vonnegut story about a world of radical human equality. So strong people have to wear weights so that they become weaker and um, intelligent people have to wear headsets that distract them constantly. And, um, you know, this is the end game plus like weird kind of like transhumanist chimeric, I'm a dragon now dad kind of nightmarish stuff. And, um, you know, there's like, it's frightening enough when people want to come after your property or your liberty for rational reasons. It's, it's downright terrifying when they want to come after it for these maniacal, unhinged, um, you know, schizophrenic person fantasy mm-hmm. reasons that are completely unmoored from reality. Um, you know, but this like whole whole idea that society owes me whatever I want to be at any second, I think, and this and the glossing over of human difference that's involved in that, you know, people are just interchangeable parts. And and of course, when, when you say when you say human difference, you're referring to talent and productivity and things that actually contribute to a, an orderly society. You're not talking about differences in race and gender and sexual orientation and things like things that they actually celebrate. Not not just celebrate, but like. Um, make the end all and be all of their of their worldview. Well, I'm right? not a biological essentialist by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think it's like you know, I don't think it should be controversial to say that like you know, people from different cultures, even different subcultures in the United States, are different from one another and have mm. different value sets and mores and things of this nature. Um, I do. I am a biological essentialist with regard to to sex. 
um, you know, I, I think that um, there, there are fundamental biological differences between men and women. And I also think that there's fundamental, um, I don't know what else really to call them, but like spiritual differences between men and women. Sure. That, Psychological, something like uh, that. If you, know, if you read Polly's work on, on, on gender, sex is very influential to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the experience of being male-bodied is entirely different from being female-bodied and things like that. But I think that the troubling aspect of what's going on right now is, first of all, the idea, like the concept of disparate impact is, is a really good example of like, you know, the, there, there must be something wrong if there's any um, out, outcome in race or gender. Like, there, I- like that's like, prima facie evidence that, that that this is institutionally racist as they say um and i and i and you know i reject that certainly but what's much more troubling is the you know the re- resentment at human excellence and human achievement which i think is um really expressed in the left's fascination with ugliness, um, which I think it's easy to joke about. And, you know, it makes for pretty like low hanging fruit, like, like what is with modern art and what is with modern architecture and what is with, why does everybody who gets arrested in a riot look like, you know, one of the chud mutants from that movie. Um, but I think that there really is like something kind of fundamentally going on there where they, they don't like human strength. They don't like human beauty. Um, and this, I think, motivates a lot of what drives their kind of desire to control people. Are you familiar with the Perfume Nationalist by chance? No. Okay, so the Perfume Nationalist is a podcast hosted by a guy named Jack, the Perfume Nationalist. And that basically, everything that you just described is his thesis. The thing is, he's a big old gay faggy queen in Austin, but he has become like the voice of what of, of that thing you just said. He's even taught a course for uh, Renegade University called The War on Beauty in the 21st Century. Uh, and it's it's fantastic. I, I'll send you a link to it because I, okay. I think you'd really like it I'll, after we get off here. Do you have a few extra minutes to talk about national divorce? Yeah, sure. All I, right, and I cool. think it's an I, I know important that, topic. Yeah, I know that you don't favor it, which is no. a little bit surprising coming from just knowing the other things that you say. Can you kind of lay out your, your thesis with that? I am not ceding a nanometer of this country to communists. Uh, no. A million times, no. They can't have it. They didn't build it. It's not theirs. I'm not giving it to them. They won't be happy with it anyway. These people aren't happy with anything. You're not going to give them half the country and they're going to go away. I mean, it's just like, it's ridiculous on its face because like the idea that these people are ever going to leave you alone. Like, have you learned nothing? They're never going to leave you alone. So, you know, I think it's deeply flawed on that level. I think that there is a kind of surrender quality about it you know, like I'm not giving up California. I mean, I'll give it up for now, but like, 
they're, they can't keep it. Uh, we'll do a we'll beat a strategic retreat out of blue states, but um, no, they can't have it. And uh, I, you know, I'm like, I am such a like manifest destiny patriotic American that the idea of like splitting the country up just is just grossly offends me on such a deep level. Um, I don't want to be ruled by San Francisco, um, but. You know, people t- like I don't like cities because they're cramped, they're noisy, they're smelly. You know, now they're full of homeless tents and rioters and everything else. But, you know, and I've like become very, very accustomed to living in the middle of nowhere and never seeing anybody for days at a time. Um, but the, the like, you know, what would New York be like if it weren't? If it weren't chaotic and run by people who hate this country and hate freedom and want to like foment as much chaos as they can to, you know, force you into serfdom, um, what would it look like if it was competently run? It would probably be really nice. Um, same with San Francisco or Los Angeles or, you know, Portland or any of these places. It's the, the problem isn't. I think for most people's perspective isn't actually the city. It's about who's in the saddle there. Um, so, and it's so defensive too, you know, then, which is like fundamentally my problem with the right is it's all defense. It's all retreat. Yeah. Yeah. It's all retreat. It's all reaction. It's all responding. There's never any like, like let's get aggressive. Like let's move the ball Let's not prevent the ball from getting moved, you know, too far in the wrong direction. Let's actually start fighting back and and uh, re- reclaiming some ground. And I just don't see how national divorce accomplishes that. But I think more of the point, like these people are just not going to leave you alone ever because because of the things that I'm talking talking about. I mean, because like. There's this, um, you know, imperative that they have, this resentment that they have of, of normality and success and um, what kind of, I mean, the Kurt Schlichter books about like the national divorce, I think are probably a lot closer to what national divorce would look like. You'd have mostly functioning state and then a failing state. And then there's the whole other aspect of like, you know, how did national divorce work out for like Yugoslavia in the extreme bad example? Uh, if you're old enough to remember, for those of you at home who are too young to remember, yeah. I was, was in a, second grade, so I, I'm I'm a little too young to remember. Actually, yeah, there was a horrific genocidal civil war in uh, Yugoslavia throughout most of the mid '90s. Uh, merely reading the Wikipedia entry about it, I'm sure will cool your heels if you're one of these uh, bring on the boogaloo types because civil wars are ugly. I mean, really ugly. Um, but all, you know, in a less extreme example that didn't result in civil war, I mean, post-Soviet states like what is Belarus, some great uh, shining, shining beacon of achievement for the Belarusian people know it's a it's a battleground between nato and russia you know it's it's a pawn on a chessboard and that's what the united states will be it'll be a 
plaything for Russia and China to fight over. And I know that a lot of libertarians like to kind of poo-poo that stuff, but like, you know, we live in a world where people seek power. And there's and 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 if you got a road out of that, I'm all ears. I mean, I don't know that I even necessarily think that it would be a good thing if people didn't seek power, because I think that that's what drives I literally think that that's what drives human history and human existence and human excellence um, is, you know, when Nietzsche called the will to power. But the um, I think that, um, you know, it's like why I, I want America to have a big military. I don't want it sending the big military everywhere in the world, policing what everybody does. I do want it making sure that Somali pirates don't take over the um, oil shipping lanes or that, you know, uh, Russia doesn't take over the job of policing the world shipping lanes because I live in America and I want America to do that because I will benefit from it. And, you know, I don't, don't have some like complicated philosophical argument about it. I just like feel like I live in a world where somebody's going to be, um, you know, getting the getting the uh, the cream off of that uh, cream off of that bottle of milk from making sure that the oil gets where it needs to go. And I want you know my team, broadly speaking, to be the one that that does it. Um, you know, and I just don't think that these like that these questions of kind of like real politic and global power pushing are easily shoved away. And I just don't see how any balkanized America would be anything but a playground for mostly Russia and, and China and, you know, also the EU. And uh, as much as I don't like the federal government, um, I can think of, I can think of no fewer, no, no, I can't think of many, many, uh, you know, state actors or quasi-state actors I'd less rather be ruled by than China, Russia, or the EU. So do you do you at least agree that some degree of decentralization would be for the better in the United States? Like oh, I mean, I'm all for decentralization. I mean, decentralization is like my whole thing, you know, whether it's in economics or media or politics or whatever. I mean, decentral, yeah, yes. Like I want to absolutely bleed the federal government of basically all, all power except its awesome warships um, <laughs> that are keeping the Strait of Hormuz open so that the oil can flow. Yeah, um, I feel like if uh, you know those student loans and housing loans and and all that stuff were more localized, I mean, you could even keep it in the hands of the government, of a government. It just doesn't need to be in the hands of the federal government. And and with that, you get more pro-social attitudes from people because, you know, I mean, when, when, they're, when, when they're deriving these benefits from something closer to home, you can't help but have a higher trust society. I mean, that's why the Scandinavian countries do so well, even though they're socialist, right. because, the, because the people trust each other. Hell, most of them are related to each other, but that's neither here nor there. You know, if, if the people of Vermont were creating their own or maybe even just all of New England were creating their own little socialized medicine regime, then... Vermont actually has socialized medicine. Um, Yeah, and I couldn't speak to how well it works or doesn't work, but like, I'm open to the fact... I'm open to the idea that socialized medicine may work in Vermont, you know? Because like, what, what, 20 people live there? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's not it's not a yeah. it's not a nation of three hundred thirty million people. It, it's more like a mutual aid society than a than a national healthcare service. Yeah, and if and and the thing too is like, I mean, the the you know the decentralization thing, you know, uh, decentralization is, is is not national divorce. It's the it's mm-hmm. the it's the cure for national divorce. So I how mean, do you get there? I think we're already moving there. I think we're already okay. moving there. I mean, I think the people who will never leave you alone are impotent uh, for the most part. I think that they're paper tigers. And I think that the, I try not to pin too much on elections, um, but I think that the next election is going to be a seismic shift. And I think that it's going to be a seismic shift, both in terms of, I think it's going to be a route for the Democrats on the level of the uh, 94 uh, Republican revolution, uh, because I think that a lot of the, the Trumpist party will finally be codified in what the legislature looks like. Um, and I also think that a part of that, that I just talked about will be, you're going to have a lot more uh, Paul Gosar's. You're going to have a lot more uh, Matt Gates's and Marjorie Greens and Lauren Boebert's and these kinds of people that, the mainstream media, the controlled press will refer to as kooks or conspiracy theorists or white supremacists or whatever kind of label they want to throw at them, but who are people who fundamentally are in your corner and who have allied interests with you. See, this is the thing is like, there's this impulse to like, and Coulter talks about this, there's this impulse to like, what does he really mean and what are his real like what's what's this politician what's his real angle it's like who cares like what has he done what has he done for you and i think that we are at a point in american politics possibly the first point in my adult life where we can look at a number of politicians and say like if we're t- like talking operationally what have they done what have they gotten done for you? Um, I think that we can find quite a fair number of people in American political life right now who actually are doing quite a fair bit for you in terms of restraining this madness of of, of you know quasi religious righteousness that's overcome the country. Um, and I think that we're going to have a lot more of those figures who I think are marginal even within their own party. But um, I think that the middle, middle American radicalism thing that I talked about briefly before is really starting to take hold because of the extremity and the visceral nature of the um, attacks on liberty right now are about injecting your children with experimental vaccines and teaching them to hate themselves for their race. And these things are both so viscerally repugnant to the average American, the average non-ideological, just wants to go to work, come home, see his kids at the end of the day, American, that... And the only party that the only political party that has anybody who has anything sensible to say about 
any of it is the Republican Party. You know, obviously the Republican Party is is far from perfect and contains a number of people I would criticize rather sharply, but it's also the only mainstream American political party that contains people who will talk some sense about what's going on and, you know, just sense about what's going on in the country right now. And I think that that's really going to resonate, you know, because like, you know, who's a, I don't know if he's a registered Republican or whatever, but he certainly is doing the work of, uh, you know, moving feet to the polls is Chris Rufo and his anti-critical race theory stuff. Um, You know, that is what a, and he's not, you know, he's not a some camo from head to toe shooting a gun in the air, um, kind of, you know, didactically right wing guy. He's pretty normal guy, but that guy who's like can't ignore the reality that's going on in front of him, um, and kind of just would prefer to be left alone. You know, they're just all they. they the writing is. I think kind of on the wall for a lot of people that the depth of the hostility that the elites in this country uh, and around the world indeed have for your way of life and the contempt that they feel for you, I think is just so on display right now in a way that kind of like the um, intelligent, thoughtful, reasonable half of the chunk of people who just kind of want to get along or you know not really capable of not really capable of ignoring it anymore you know it's just how do you the amount of the amount of uh willful deception that has to take place to accept the narrative that's going on right now and you know as michael malice talks about too like they're not they're not capable people they're just fundamentally they're not capable people that's why they do the things they do I mean, you know, go read your Ayn Rand. Like, who are the rent seekers? They're not people who are capable. Yeah, no, they're people who have connections and are their skill set is glad handing and yeah, they're capable BSing of people, and filling That's, out paperwork and yes, teacher, no teacher. Yeah, you know, like they, they they're not use they're not useful people. They've chosen yeah. to not be useful people. They're the people in bullshit jobs too, which is another topic of conversation that I've had on this show. Um, all right, cool. Well, why don't we start winding down? This has been a great conversation. Uh, and I hate the pills, but it's been white pilling. I hate the bit, pills, but is- I like that. Like, I like that I'm getting this, you know, I've like gotten this reputation on Twitter over the last two weeks. It's like, I'm the white pill man. So yeah, a little I'm bit. happy so. to dispense with them. <laughs> Cause like, I just don't, I just, I, you know, pills i feel like i'm taking crazy pills because i just don't every person i encounter is like oh it's all over now and i'm like what are you talking about what on earth are you talking about this incompetent old this you know senile old man this incompetent administration and 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 the and the and the mass non-compliance with like the vaccine mandate, which is like, that was the thing that was, you know, that's the super intrusive and everyone's, everyone's going to go along with everyone's just going to go ahead and do it. Nobody did it. Nobody got it because of the mandate. 
I mean, yeah. if you're one of the few people at home who like did because of your job, like I'm genuinely sorry, and I don't mean to I don't mean to poo-poo that there are people right now who are being coerced into getting vaccinated. But like I just don't I think it was, you know, at Sam Jacobs 1776 on Twitter. You can find me there and tell me what an idiot I am. I, I genuinely welcome such comments, but um, I just am not seeing, I'm seeing a lot of people who are afraid of losing their jobs on January, whatever it is. And, and my heart goes out to those people, but I'm not seeing any evidence, particularly with the ruling from the court today, this is going to go anywhere. And like, and what has he done that has, what have they gotten? What have they gotten in the last year? Nothing. That's my big white pill to you. What have they gotten? How much of the last year of your life has been spent, you know, with your exit strategy to based Poland or whatever? And <laughs> what have they done? You know, you've spent the last get- year stressing, blackpilling, worrying about the, you know, the, the, the Kamala Gulag. And what have they done other than make gas $7 a gallon? And take you know my Starbucks iced coffee bottles off the shelves at the Safeway, which 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 like everyone's furious about. You know, it's where's the where's the victory and where's the confidence? You know, entrenched, victorious ruling classes are confident. They aren't um, you know half asking your permission to oppress you. Like the Biden administration does, there's always this like kind of like can, can can we do this? You know, like they're like kids who are who's you know are like sneaking wine at their mom's birthday party <laughs> or something. Like, can we can we get away with it? Is, is it okay? Um, yeah, they have ton. They're they're just like nothing that they want is happening. They're recreating the state militia of Ohio or Oklahoma because they're going to disenfranchise or whatever the word would be, the National Guard. No one's getting the vaccine because of the mandate. Maybe some people are, but like, it's not to their status. I'll tell you this. If you, if you get into their heart of hearts, I would bet money that none of them think it's going real well. I mean, they have to like for optics, get up and, you know, put... Uh, Saki or whatever her name is up to like do her grotesque grimacing at the camera and evasion of anything resembling a real question and paint this rosy picture. But like, I don't, I would be surprised if anyone but the most fervent wish casters in the Brandon administration think that anything's going well. They did get their infrastructure bill. They didn't. They got a tiny cut down. I know, man, the infrastructure bill. Yeah, it's bad. There's bad stuff in it. It's giantly wasteful. It's not good. It's also a third of what they wanted. Oh, good. See, I didn't follow that. I don't I don't really follow politics and bills and stuff. You're better off. Yeah. So okay, good, good, good. Because they're that today we're we're recording on eleven seventeen, uh, which I don't think this is gonna post until probably early December, because uh, I like to record early for my paid subscribers. But anyway, so that's what they're celebrating today. And here we're also awaiting the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, which, I mean, by any account seems to be going pretty well as well, which is another kind of white pill. I don't know where it's going to end up. 
Nobody does, but the, what's the public? I mean, what's the public perception after this? You had people on Twitter. I mean, not like leftists, but you know, like left liberals on Twitter being like, "I didn't know, you know, that Antioch, Illinois, was ten minutes from Kenosha or whatever." I didn't you know. know I his, mean, I didn't. I didn't know his victims, which they're, they're still calling them. They're calling them victims, but still, I didn't know the people he shot were white. Yeah, like, and I mean that, they, that that kind of the grammar of that is weird because then it's like why does it matter? You know, I mean, I guess right. it matters because of the narrative that he's it, a white supremacist, but well, like it matters to them. Yeah, right, right. No, and that's and that's fair. Um, but I think the Rittenhouse thing is like I don't see. I mean, I certainly see how Kyle Rittenhouse loses. He could go to jail for the rest of his life. But like mm-hmm. in terms of the political climate, like I don't see any way that's a loss because it's another one of these. If they send that kid to prison, um, that's, you know, um, it'll be another Russ Ulbricht. I mean, he will be, it will be Russ Ulbricht, but very mainstream because it's like the biggest (laughs) Russ, Russ Ulbricht, who everybody's heard of, who everybody's heard of. And, you know, I think that, um, I don't think that I don't think that we can ignore the like the kind of boy next door quality that he has about him. You know, he's not um, he's not Zimmerman. Like he just he looks like every eighteen year old kid in America, and I think that that is definitely there. I mean, I think that he's if anybody's kind of tailor made for the role of political martyr in the United States. It's Kyle Rittenhouse. I mean, I certainly hope he he doesn't go to jail, um, and I and I and I don't think that he will. But um, I think that even if he does, there I don't think he's going away. I don't think that case is going away. If he, I think it will be a uh, cause celebre for the Republican Party um, for as long as he's in jail. You know, I mean, I think it's like you could not concoct in the uh, script department of Universal a better martyr for uh, American values than Kyle Rittenhouse. I mean, the appearance is part of it, but and I think a, I, I think a you know big part of kind of what makes him he's very photogenic and um, and. and uh, it has a kind of like innocence um, about him, which is strange given the circumstances of his notoriety. Um, but I don't, I, you know, I don't see again, like I don't want to, I don't want to intellectualize it too much because there's, you know, kids life is hanging in the balance here and, and I don't want to get too like glib about it. But I, I, I don't think that in the event of a conviction that I, I think there will be mass outrage. You know, I don't think that it, that'll take the form of like conservatives and libertarians smashing up police stations or any kind of, you know, pitchfork and torch grabbing and storming the castle or anything of that nature. But um, I certainly think that people will be very angry. And I think that it will have um, probably pretty far reaching political consequences you know i think that um any uh, i've said this since the beginning anybody who will not vocally and actively defend kyle rittenhouse is your enemy uh, and sh- you know this is not a both sides equivocating um 
thing where nuance is really appropriate. Um, kid shot rioters who were trying to kill him, one of whom had a history of violently sexually assaulting children. So, um, you know, I think the, and I think that uh, if anything, you know, I think putting him on the stand was a huge gambit, but mm-hmm. if anything, it's really, really paid off because um, I think win, lose, or draw, you know, Kyle Redhouse isn't going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And if he wasn't photogenic and well spoken, I bet you his lawyer wouldn't have put him on the stand, but he, no, kid and, like, <laughs> no, but he okay. handled, I mean, that was the thing is like he has that, you know, he has that boyish kind of quality about him. He had the, that was a, he had a panic attack, you know, yeah. and I don't want to be, I really don't, didn't care for the like, oh, poor little Kyle kind of aspect of it. Yeah. Um, because I feel like the one place where I do kind of nuance with this is like, you know, it's time to be a man now, kid. Like you, you bought the ticket and you took the ride and we know what the situation is in this country and whose side the government is on. And, you know, and I certainly hope he gets off. Um, but, you know, he's not a victim. Um, I don't consider him a victim. I think that he's, he's on trial because he's not a victim. Yep. And, I, and, I, and I don't really care for the efforts to kind of infantilize him um, in that way. But, you know, I, I felt bad for him. He had a panic attack. Um, but other than that, I think that he really has been remarkable in his poise on the stand. I mean, he's very, um, he's, he's very um, collected for such a, a young man in such a intense spot. So I, I think he's going to be around for a long time. Yeah, I hope so. He and Nick Sandman maybe can uh, can collaborate on something. <laughs> well, Nick Sandman reached out to him. So. Yeah, I saw that on your website. That's pretty cool. It'll be outdated news by the time uh, by the time this airs, but uh, it's at news.libertasbella.com, uh, along with a bunch of other su- stuff, which I'll link to in the show notes. Also, I found your 9-11 article that you mentioned earlier, so yeah. I'm going to link to that. That's at ammo.com, uh, where you can certainly shop for your ammo as well. Uh, and then your Twitter, Sam Jacobs 1776 yep. Anything else you want me to link to? Uh, ammo.com forward slash Sam will get you $20 off any order of $200 or more. We have most common calibers in stock. If we don't come back in a couple of days, we turn it over, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. But I know a lot of people are still having trouble getting their nine, their 223, their 12 gauge, you know, that kind of stuff. And we definitely have that in stock. Uh, ammo.com forward slash Sam, get you 20 bucks off your order. All right, awesome. Oh, and then your great podcast is Resistance Library, which you can just find by searching for it on your podcast apps. Thanks. And we have lots of cool stuff coming up on that. So you should definitely uh, definitely check it out. All right, sweet. Thanks a lot, Sam. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. 
Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. 